0: Uh, I mean, I really don't know <laughs> that we need to say anything beyond what was said earlier. Um, uh, what we have here is beautiful, and we need to take that out into the rest of the world. <sighs> so, uh, with that, hi, I'm Andrew. Um, uh, it's important to note, and I'm legally obligated to tell you, that the last time I was up here speaking and it wasn't announcements, I was wearing a bunny suit. And to those of you who were not here, who think that might be a joke, I can assure you it was not. Oh, let's not. Let's not show that. Um, so, um, It was really an really uplifting experience last week. Um, Steven said that I'd be speaking and uh, two people immediately came up and told me that they would not be here this week. <laughs> Um, So, it really reinforced my confidence. I'm very ready to say and do uh, everything that I have. Uh, You know, I I teach. I talk in front of people for a living. They literally pay me to do this, which, now that you've heard it for 30 seconds, probably amazes you as much as it does me. Um, But we will be uh, today in the book of Jonah. Uh, It takes up about two pages in a standard Bible. Um, So thumb through, find it. It's sandwiched between uh, Obadiah and Micah, and that will help you none at all because both of those take up about two pages as well. Um, lots of very short books in that section of the Bible. And um, we're going to go through the whole thing today. Um, we'll be kind of going in fast forward. That's all right. I teach history. We cover thousands of years in a single day. It's fine. Just repeats itself. Um, That joke was a lot funnier before. Yeah. Um, This is a two-question lesson. Um, Both of them are questions that I struggle mightily with. um, And like any good teacher, I'm going to be asking questions and then not answering them. Um, So that's a thing that's going to happen. Uh, So let's, uh, let's talk about Jonah very briefly. This is probably the book of the Bible that... It's a candidate for the one that people are most familiar with, right? I mean, everybody has heard this story. People who are unchurched know the story. Uh, Really, aside from maybe a few of the tales of the patriarchs in Genesis, uh, this is one of the most familiar tales uh, in all of biblical history. And when you think Jonah, especially when you're younger, what do you think? What immediately comes to mind? The whale, the fish, and we'll address that. Okay, Uh, we're going to um, definitely address that, but we're not dwelling on it. Um, We are going to look at, uh, first, from an historical perspective, because that is what I do, um, and then go through uh, the various aspects of Jonah. So the first question, question one of the day, um, is... What if it's those people? We all have those people, right? An annoying coworker, people we don't like, people we don't enjoy interacting with, Methodists, kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) All right, and we all know, we all know we're supposed to pray for our enemies. Everybody knows that, but that's hard, y'all. All right, that is extraordinarily difficult. And what's even more difficult is what God tells Jonah to do. Because God doesn't say, hey, pray for your enemies, but you can stay comfortable right here in Israel, buddy. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, that in and of itself doesn't sound like you know, that big of a deal. We've got go to this big city and preach. Well, here's the thing. We've got a ballpark figure. Uh, one of the many reasons I love the book of Jonah is A, it's short, and B, um, we can actually historically date this. Jonah's actually mentioned offhandedly in the uh, book of 2 Kings, specifically 2 Kings chapter 14. And we actually can get a date, based on the uh, guy who was king of Israel at the time, we can get a date for his life. This story takes place somewhere between 793 and 753 BC. All right, so Nineveh is in Iraq. Not exactly the most pleasant place through any of human history. Iraq is not a good vacation spot. All right. And when he gets this word, what does Jonah do? He runs. Not only does he run, most historians, most biblical historians accept that he does not just run. He goes the other direction. Iraq lies, if you were to sit and look at a map, Iraq lies to the east, more or less, of Israel. Judah, technically. Jonah's going west. Jonah boards a ship to go to a place called Tarshish Which there's some debate on where Tarshish is Some people say it's the island of Sardinia Some people say it's all the way in Spain There's a couple other areas floated It doesn't matter Jonah ain't going to Nineveh He ain't going to Iraq Alright Now why, why the fleeing Well Anybody know who lived in Nineveh The people group The Assyrians Emphasis on the first three letters Good job guys All right, and here's the thing, y'all. This is a massive Assyrian city. It is one of, if not the largest city on the planet at the time, and it wasn't the capital of the empire yet. uh, But it's still a hugely important town. Think New York or L.A. to the modern United States. Only, well, we'll get to that in a second. Still, why be spooked by the Assyrians? Why be spooked by the Ninevites? Why? What makes these people so scary? Well. There's a lot of references here, um, but I'm just going to use one from about three pages over in the Bible. I would not recommend projecting this one. Book of Nahum, 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 sorry, I'm from rural North Carolina and went to Western, so I'm not real well versed on how to pronounce Hebrew words. Um, But in the book of Nahum, it's a three, three, four, I believe it's three, three chapter long book all about prophesying Nineveh's destruction. Um, It is addressed in uh, chapter 3 verse 1 as the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. Elsewhere in the Bible, you go through kings or chronicles. Um, The Assyrians are frequently mentioned as wicked, uh, you look at the evil kings of Israel and Judah, and any time they ally with the Assyrians or their vassals, bad stuff happens, false gods are put up. It's uh, really loathsome stuff. And if you're a cynical person or if you're like me, you, know, you believe in multi-sourcing your history, you're like, well, maybe this is just historical bias on the part of the Jews. Here's the problem with that. Even the Assyrians like to write about the terrible stuff that they did. From the Assyrian Chronicle. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive and cut off some of their arms and hands. What a lovely bunch of people. That's who Jonah's supposed to go minister to. See, God has not said, hey, go minister to your neighbor. Go minister to these people far away. It might be an inconvenient trip. God is saying, "Go and minister to the most loathsome and awful and horrible group of people in existence at this time and by the way, that uh, quote comes from an Assyrian king who lived before Jonah, but uh, quotes like that are found throughout Assyrian history, and that 's the only one I could find that I felt comfortable reading in a church it Thank you. It's not a pleasant read. I know that because I've read it. My wife has been subjected to various quotes from it. My apologies uh, to you, dear. Love you. Um, And I understand Jonah's change in direction. All right? I empathize with Jonah in many, many, many respects. Okay? Because he is being told to witness to these awful people, and suddenly having a conversation with the Jehovah's Witnesses who show up on your porch does not seem so bad. Right? Right? moving on. So Jonah goes this opposite direction and God of course sends a storm uh, out on the sea and it's important to look at a few of the details in chapter one. Uh, We all basically when you're reading this especially when you're young uh, Jonah gets on the boat the sailors uh, toss him overboard after realizing he's responsible for it and then he's swallowed up by the fish but we're going to dissect that just a tad bit. Um, So first off this storm gets so bad Verse uh, 5 tells us that the sailors are, chapter 1, verse 5, tells us the sailors are afraid, crying out to their own gods, and then they throw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Think about what that means, guys. What's these sailors' livelihood? Cargo. The storm has gotten bad enough that they're tossing the cargo overboard, Ain't nobody paying for an empty ship to show up halfway across the Mediterranean. So they've given up making a profit. They are now just trying to stay alive. And what's Jonah doing? He's taking a nap. You ever been on a boat? It can be even a little rowboat or canoe when it starts to rocking. It is not easy to sleep. I don't recommend it. If those of you who are shaking your heads and I have never done that good, don't. All right. Jonah gets woken up. They go down. They go below decks. They wake up Jonah, and uh, they ask, Hey, our gods aren't doing anything. Can you stop this storm? Probably more panicky, and of course, in a language I don't speak, but you get the drift. And uh, Jonah doesn't want the sailors to die on his account. You know, we, we tend to overstate Jonah's reluctance. He's reluctant, but I don't think he's what anybody would call a bad guy. They draw lots. Just a typical thing to do at this point in time. And then um, you look at verse, chapter 1, verse 9. He answered them. They've asked, where are you from? I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. Uh, verse 11, they asked, what should we do? And verse 12, he says, hey, pick me up and throw me into the ocean literally saying, hey, toss me off the boat. They're in the ocean. I mean, the Mediterranean Sea, it can get stormy, it can get nasty, and he's going to go into the water and drown. He basically says, hey, kill me. Now, on the one hand, this is good Jonah. Good job, Jonah. You are going to Willingly sacrifice yourself, you're going to voluntarily yield your life so that these people may live. That's good. But, and I don't have any evidence for this, but I do like to think, what else? What's another fringe benefit for Jonah if he gets tossed into the ocean? He still don't have to go to Nineveh, all right? Now, he'd probably prefer to be alive, but at the very least, he's not going to be stuck with the Ninevites. All right. So the sailors aren't Jewish, and, and, and I find this interesting. This is one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, they try to get back to land. They know murder's wrong. They may not be Jewish, but, you know, don't kill other people. Is, it, it, it's a fairly common cultural standard. Um, but the sea gets even worse, and they basically say, Oh, Lord, calling God Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. They take Jonah, throw him overboard, and the raging sea grows calm. At this time, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Y'all pause for a moment. Jonah's in the water. Jonah's down somewhere, about to become fish food. How do we know that? how do we know these guys began to worship, began to acknowledge God as God? Excuse me? They call him Lord. And they have to tell somebody. All right, so even in the midst of Jonah doing literally the opposite of what he is supposed to be doing, God works it to good that's pretty darn stunning. And we get hung up on whether or not it's a whale or a fish. All right, now basically everybody knows uh, what happens next. We're gonna go through uh, the fish swallows him up. Uh, Again, I don't know why we get hung up on that. It's like, I believe that God could create the universe with a word and that he raised his son from the dead, and that he sent his own son to die on a cross for me and the forgiveness of my sin. But three days and a fish, I don't know. All right, that's kind of an odd thing to get hung up on, right? (sighs) Sorry. He's stuck there for three days and three nights. That's clearly a symbolic uh, gesture. God works in threes, and we know that. Um, Jesus even references the sign of Jonah in uh, Matthew 12. And uh chapter two is a uh wonderful prayer uh by Jonah. It's the only part of this that's written in sort of a verse uh poetic style, and I find it um it's a great it's a it really is. It's an excellent, excellent prayer, and it's um there's not much for me to add. It's uh, something to remember if you're in distress. It it's very psalm-like, honestly, if you read through the entirety of it, but we've got two other chapters, and I haven't gotten to my favorite part yet, but uh, I do want to note that in verse 8 of chapter 2, so near the end of Jonah's prayer, uh, Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, and it's important to note that because of where he's going, because he's going to actually go to Nineveh now, all right, Jonah finishes his prayer, and the fish, and I am quoting the NIV here, vomits Jonah onto dry land. Um, I am sure that there is an entire lesson to be had on the blessings in the form of fish vomit, but we really do not have time for that today. Um, Anybody, you can have that title. I'm not going to write that one. But um, if we're looking at the heart of the lesson, what I'm hoping to... Uh, address today, is uh, chapters three and four of Jonah, which are not the chapters that we tend to focus on when we're younger. And that's understandable, because you can get a child to understand God is powerful enough that um, he can send a whale to swallow you, and then you can exit it unharmed three days later. It's hard to get a seven-year-old to understand the uh, importance of converting an entire city and saving it from destruction. So, Let's rectify that error. All right, so chapter 3 opens with a friendly reminder. I love that the first verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 3 are basically identical. Um, Jonah this time has learned his lesson. One storm and a weekend inside of a whale later, Jonah has learned his lesson. Um, And this time he goes. He packs up his things from wherever he was on the... uh, Beach. I like to imagine him with little seaweed in his hair and probably smelling like whatever fish vomit smells like. Surprisingly, I don't know what that smells like. Um, and Jonah gets up, and he goes to this city. He goes to the Ninevites. He goes to this town that he did not want to go to. And he starts walking around. Uh, we're in chapter 3 and uh, we're going to read verse 3 and 4 to you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. So seeing Nineveh requires a three-day visit, and Jonah starts to prophesy on day one, And then something strange happens. Now I want you to think, think back to Genesis, specifically to two cities you've heard of, Sodom and Gomorrah. Couldn't find a single righteous person in them, obliterated from the face of the planet. Found Lot. One. And yet, this reluctant guy this guy who literally went the opposite direction that God told him to go, walks through this city, this deplorable city of horrible people, and becomes one of the most effective prophets in the history of the Bible. And I don't think that was necessarily Jonah's charisma shining through. Word reaches the king of Nineveh, As a historian, I have to tell you, we don't really know who that is. Might have been the king of Assyria. Might have just been a local king who ruled the city itself. Not the detail you need to get hung up on. And the king of this city humbles himself and puts on sackcloth and ashes. He orders the people to. He orders the livestock to. And how repentant must you be to dress up your pet in sackcloth and ashes? You ever tried to dress a cow? It's not easy. Don't ask how I know the. All right. To revisit the line from chapter two, the second to last line of Jonah's uh, prayer, they don't cling to their worthless idols and they get grace. So we've addressed, we haven't answered because I can't answer it. um, Question one, we have addressed the issue of Jonah. What if it's those people? Which brings me to the second question, which is the one that I really struggle with. And so, the second question is the much more difficult one, and it's the one that I'm going to ask, and then we'll address what we can. What if it works? What if you address those people, no matter how repugnant they are, and it works. Because we're still human beings. This is probably the most difficult question for me. It's one of the most difficult questions that anyone who practices Christianity faces, because we like satisfying narratives. We like our stories to end with the bad guy incarcerated or dead, good triumphant, and everything's going to be happily ever after forever. Y'all, I teach history. That's not how it works. So what happens when a terrorist or a murderer turns away from his or her evil ways and practices the faith? We know that answer. We just don't like it. Matthew 20, parable of the vineyard workers. Sorry, I don't have a a verse reference for you. Um, They're all paid the same, no matter how long they've worked. The ones who work all day in the heat It's a parable, but still. Work all day in the heat. You get paid the exact same as somebody who's pulled in in the last hour to try to grab the harvest. And that's not fair. It is not fair that somebody can grow up in church at age five, spend their entire life working, and get the exact same reward as a thief or murderer who converts at the last minute. That is not fair. You know what else isn't fair? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. People who voluntarily severed their connection with God, human beings who voluntarily severed their connection with God, get a chance at reconciliation, and we don't deserve it. Trust me, guys. When it comes to matters of theology, when it comes to matters of uh, of grace and repentance, you don't want to live in a universe that's fair. Now, don't conflate my words. I am not referring to the unrepentant. I am not referring to those who claim one thing and do another. Who wrap hate, violence, racism, and sexism in the church? All right, that is not repentance. Penance and change has to take place. You don't get to go through the motions. Going into a church makes you a Christian in the same respect that going into a gym makes you fit. If you don't do anything with it, all right, calming myself down. Where I really emphasize with Jonah, though, where I'm like, this guy, he gets it, is chapter four. Chapter 4 of Jonah is my moment where I empathize the most with maybe anybody in the Bible. Because I've never been swallowed by a whale. I've never saved a town of the most deplorable human beings imaginable. But I have had a sulk when God doesn't do what Andrew wants God to do. I have had myself a little pity party. And Jonah leaves this city that's not been destroyed, darn it. He leaves it mad. He has succeeded in his divine mission. He has saved the largest city on the planet from destruction. And he's angry. Let that sink in, guys. Imagine hearing God call you, you go do what the creator of the universe told you to do, and he does it through you, and you're mad. Darn it, God. Why'd you do that? Why'd you do what you said you were going to do? And he succeeded in his divine mission, and he's livid. Chapter 4, verse 2 calls what he does here a prayer. And I checked multiple uh, translations to make sure this wasn't an NIV quirk. And it is. This is probably the least prayerful prayer I have ever read of all time. Like, yeah, we think of prayer as dear Lord. Yeah, how many of our prayers, not that it's a bad thing, start with thank you. That's good. Jonah's prayer doesn't start like that. Have a listen to Jonah's prayer in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3 here. This is a prayer. The Bible calls this a prayer. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Verse 3. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. You did what you said you were going to do, and now could you please kill me? Some prayer, right? All right. So uh, remember that hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer? Jonah had not heard that (laughs) one. This is not a sweet hour of prayer for Jonah. This is more of an hour of rant. This would be punk rock. <laughs> All right. Now, after Jonah's prayer of complaint, after Jonah says that he's mad that God is forgiving because they deserved it, and that he wants to die because I do not he really is, I think. I'm, I might be wrong here. He really is saying, I don't know if I want to serve a God who can forgive these people. And then God asks an armor-piercing question, a laser-guided question. Jenna wouldn't have known what a laser is, but still roll with me here. The Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Now, remember what I read to you of the Assyrian Chronicle with people's body parts being lopped off, and that's the clean version Have you any right to be angry? Yes! I do! And to Jonah's credit, he basically says that. But um, the most difficult verses of the Bible for me, full transparency here, easily the most difficult verse of the Bible for me to grasp are two that you're familiar with that we normally don't use in this context, but Isaiah 55 verses eight through nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Y'all, I use my brain for a living. That is the most difficult thing in the world for me to accept. And they're difficult for Jonah to accept, too. I love this. He goes outside of the city, and verse 5 says, now remember, he's, he's seen the conversion. He knows it's not going to be destroyed. Chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. You know, just in case. Maybe God's going to change his mind. Maybe a little bit of destruction. Maybe some light smiting. <sighs> And he's sitting there, and this is Iraq, y'all. Now, it's a bit different. There were some irrigation networks that existed back then, blah, blah, blah. You don't care. I know. I teach this. Um, but it's still hot, all right? May have been a bit greener, but it's hot. And in verse 6, God causes a vine to spring up and cover Jonah, and Jonah is happy about this. It even says it. Jonah was very happy about the vine chapter 4 verse 6 if you need a reference that you'll never use Um, and (laughs) sorry I just I love Jonah Uh, because in verse 7 God sends a worm he creates the worm kills the vine that he created and Jonah gets mad again and he's hot now so he's hot and he's mad and for the second time in chapter 4 he says kill me I can't decide if Jonah was overdramatic or just like really took anger poorly, like to its logical extreme. And God talks to Jonah again, and he asks a variation of that question from back in verse four. Do you have a right to be angry? And there's many flaws we've seen in Jonah in our little whirlwind tour of uh, this, this book, but for all of Jonah's flaws, you can't fault him for a lack of boldness because God says, this is the second time, uh, chapter four, verse nine, God, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Jonah, I do. <laughs> How many of us have ever responded to God saying, I mean, y- you know, and that's okay, guys. I'm not saying you should stick with it. You better darn well listen to whatever the lesson that follows it is. But trust me, when God says, uh, I'm not going to go into the details. I've done that. When God says, do you have a right to be angry? Yeah. There is a reason we are called his children. I wonder how many of those incidents are we are called his toddlers. And God's response, which ends the book, another of my favorite things about Jonah. Full full disclosure, my favorite film, um, don't watch this, kids, is uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and it just ends. And I love the book of Jonah because it also just ends. God responds to Jonah. Do you have any right to be mad? I do. No, you don't. Boom. <laughs> God's response is a reminder. Who made the vine? You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Pretty self-explanatory there. He also says, though, I'm responsible for Nineveh. He even sneaks in what some commentators, I'm not equipped to tell you whether or not it is, have called a joke. Uh, He says, hey, look, if you don't care about the 120,000 plus Ninevites who are so ignorant, they can't tell the right hand from their left, there's a whole lot of cattle there. And think about the cows. Uh, also, some point of debate, we don't really know if the right and left thing is referring to young children who are too young to tell their right from the left, or if he's just saying, look, man, these people are dumb as rocks. But either way, God's taking compassion on them. Should I not be concerned about this great city? And here's what's interesting to me, and, and this will be... Uh, the conclusion of today's lesson, is y'all know Nineveh was destroyed, right? It was. Like, Nahum wasn't yelling into the wind. Nahum was prophesying what would happen. But what Jonah wanted happened not in Jonah's time. But in God's time. Because about 150 years after the events in the book of Jonah, give or take, uh, Nineveh is destroyed. But what destroyed Nineveh was, and I have no doubt that this was God's plan, what destroyed Nineveh was a coalition led by, amongst other people, the Babylonians, who were then able to take Israel and who then trigger the events of the book of Daniel and whose own fall would then trigger the return of the Jews to their homeland, Nehemiah and the books in that neighborhood. So why the delay? Why not just blow up Nineveh when the chance existed? Because Isaiah fifty five eight through nine, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and that's tough to swallow. But I would encourage uh, ask ask God, talk to God, y'all. He's the creator of the universe. I can virtually assure you, your question is not going to be the one that makes him go, eh? I got nothing. Okay? It's it's tough to remember at all times, even when things are good and especially when things are bad. It's tough to remember that God's timing, God's ways and thoughts are better and higher than ours. And remember y'all, we're the body. We're the hands. we're the feet. And it is our job to perform the will of God, to see it done, not to determine what it is. Um, and trust me, and I'll conclude with the, that. That thought right there was intended as much for me as it would have been for anybody else in here. So, Lord God, thank you so much, Lord, for today, for this church, for this brotherhood and sisterhood that we have, Lord. God, help us to do your will, to not be resistant, to be open and listening, and to understand that it is not our will, but yours, that it is not for us to resist but for us to do what you would have us do. And to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Andrew.